Welcome to the Online for Authors podcast. I'm the founder, Jennifer Palmer. Today I'm pleased to welcome Terry M. Brown as our guest host. Terry is an author herself and is considering if a podcast of her own is a fit for her. Until then, we're happy to have her with us. Terry's guest is an author and a world traveler. She was born in Yangon, Myanmar, and is the child of a political scientist and a multimedia artist. She grew up in a household that encouraged critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. She moved to the Pacific Northwest in the 80s, becoming a part of the Seattle arts and music scene. In the 90s, Leah opened a restaurant in Mangmar, interviewed insurgents for Human Rights Watch, and microfilmed documents at Tolslin Museum of Genocide in Cambodia, helping to bring war criminals to justice. She's been an elected city council member and a dedicated environmental activist. When she's not researching, you'll find her resigning in Snohomish, Washington. Today on Online for Authors, we have Leah Badgley, who wrote The Foreigner's Confession, and I'm super excited to have you here today, Leah. Woohoo! Yeah, me too. <laughs> Happy to see you, Terry. What is The Foreigner's Confession? The Foreigner's Confession is a dual timeline story about an American woman who experiences a tragic accident that leaves her with an amputation. In part of her recovery is to travel to Cambodia to help victims of landmines. And this is in the 1990s. She takes that job. While she's in Cambodia, experiences sort of this odd thing where she sees a portrait of a European woman who was part of the Khmer Rouge and ended up in a prison there. And the portrait happens to look, it's like it, it, it was a portrait done of her. So how could that be this portrait of this um, Yugoslav woman, communist woman in the 1970s at this prison? And then here is this 1990s American woman. And that's the mystery, how their two stories entwine. And there's, it's not, woo-woo, but it is kind of magical how it all happens. I have to first say, I, I read it and loved it. Absolutely oh, loved it. I love dual timelines. I've written a dual timeline. I, I love that. And so I, I actually jotted that down because it's like, oh yeah, I need to ask that question too. Well, it came out in 2022. Correct. What prompted you to write this story in this setting? So... I wrote myself into the book as a character uh, because I actually lived and worked at, it's now a genocide museum, you know, think mm -hmm. Auschwitz for, for Cambodia. People may not remember or be aware of what happened in Cambodia during the 1970s. You know, as Americans, we all know about the Vietnam War. Well, there was a, a civil war happening in Cambodia as well. It was uh, pretty intense pretty horrific and intense. And for those people who might remember watching the, the Killing Fields, the, the movie, there was horrific stuff going on. So I ended up through, and it's a long story that's better over a glass of wine or two, living in Cambodia and working for Cornell University on site at this former interrogation site prison that is now a genocide museum, which is still there, microfilming 
I mean, this is analog days, right? There was no digital then. Microfilming the actual documents that were left after the end of the war. So these were mainly the actual confessions extracted under torture, you know, from interrogators of the prisoners. But it was also propaganda and the photographs that if anyone ever, you know, explores the killing fields, they'll see these horrific black and white photographs that were mugshots taken of prisoners coming in. Well, my job, um, in addition to microfilming that archive, was ensuring that those negatives, because they weren't made into photographs yet, were safe and kept so that they could be used later on. So that was sort of, that's the long um, background of how I came to know about Tool Slime Museum of Genocide. I do not personally have an amputation, but I do have multiple sclerosis, which impacts my mobility. So I felt to tell a story of essentially empowerment for my approach to my, I hate to call it a disability, but my different ability, shall we say, has been always one of reckless fearlessness. So I ended up, uh, against the advice of my doctor and friends, moving to Cambodia myself to do all of this. So that sort of fueled my the character of Emily McLean. She is not me, but she is obviously influenced by me because you, Terry, know very well how we, when we write our stories, if they're going to be authentic, they come from a place of truth within us as human beings, hence my story. And I've just been told all of my life that because I've done all of this weird and strange and marvelous things, um, that I should write a memoir. And I don't want to write a memoir, but I do want to write stories that I can pull up out of my past experience. And this is the first of many. And a pandemic is a great time to write a book. Yeah, it is. Unless you happen to have your daughter and son-in-law and 15-month-old granddaughter living with you. And then it is not quite a great time. (laughs) Uh Uh But that's okay. That's okay. Instead, my husband and I rode um, across the United States on a tandem bicycle during the summer of 2020. So, oh my gosh. Okay. We have to talk more about that. (laughs) Yeah. So it it was crazy. So, you know, we both have our our pandemic stories. I was going to talk to you a little bit more about the idea of writing about someone who is differently abled and making them your main character, because yes, you have MS, but you, you are not missing a limb. Have you had any pushback on that at all? Anybody who has said you shouldn't write about someone who is significantly different than you are in terms of, you know, like physical? Well, that's a very good question because not only am I writing about someone who is differently able than I, I'm also writing from the point of view of uh, Khmer people, uh, Cambodian people. And this book came out during the conflagration that was own voices, you know, hashtag own voices. Yes. And, And so I was super, super sensitive, uh, I hope, in using sensitivity readers. Mm -hmm. And I actually interviewed young women who have amputations to ensure that 
I got, you know, some of the details right, but also to ensure that my story was coming from a place of strength and not fetishism and not um, all of the horrible things that can go exactly. into writing about differently abled people. I was aware of that. I have not had pushback. I mean, that may come, who knows, as a result of this. <laughs> um, but um, I have had people thank me because there aren't a whole lot of fiction books out there that feature different able people where that's not a big part of the story. Exactly. That's just, she's blonde, she's tall, and oh, by the way, she wears a prosthesis. Kind of, that was my approach to it. And there's actually a scene in there where she's talking with this journalist guy where she gets mad at him. She says, I am not an amputee. I happen to have an amputation. And so I've been very, very careful when I talk about this book to use that terminology. Right, right. Well, and I thought you did a wonderful job. I liked how her amputation is what kind of like propelled her to be in Cambodia. But then from that point on, as you said, it really had very little to do with the story. Every now and then she recognized things about her own self. And she recognized things that maybe were holding her back as she kind of discovered that she was allowing this, this amputation to maybe hold her back in certain aspects of her life, but that she then overcame that. And I loved it. It was, it was, it was really good, but I was just curious how, how that came about because you're right. There are not a lot of, of fiction stories where the main character has a different physical ability of some kind, like there's something that isn't, you know, just like every other standard person out there, you know, your average American research. Okay. So like <laughs> I am, I, I use the hashtag research junkie because <laughs> I love research. And it's one of the reasons that I love writing historical fiction is because it allows me to put the two passions that I have together, researching and writing. And Someone once said, well, why don't you write nonfiction if you like it? It's like, yeah, it's not what I, I like the, the creative aspect of the writing. And then I just love delving into research. There had to have been a lot of research. In well, um, I'm with you. And, and let me first sort of congratulate you on your, your wonderful historical novel, because they are immaculately researched and, and we, we are you. in in the eras you know um especially your most recent one an enemy like me if i can give you a plug Thank um, you. <laughs> also i don't think that i'm a research junkie but i'm a history junkie i can go down rabbit holes the internet is our friend. Imagine if we were doing this with Encyclopedia Britannica's and, oh. and actually and having in, to go to the librarian and in the and library. Your right? list. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I confess to using the internet quite a bit. I do actually, for Foreigner's Confession, have a very extensive library of books about the era and about Khmer Rouge, just because it's my personal experience. And it was for many years an obsession and continues to inform all of my future books, this idea that any of us is capable of horrible things given the right set of circumstances. Yep. Yep. And so understanding that you and I actually have talked briefly about this concept before, and this is why I love so much your book, An Enemy Like Me, because this idea that 
if we want to see the enemy, you know, look in the mirror because, right. or, or the evil, look in the mirror because we are capable of anything. That sort of theme is of interest to me. Khmer Rouge were egregious in the horrible things that they committed on behalf of their philosophy. It's been fascinating to me to dig deeper into that and to find out that the philosophy itself was good. It's just the execution of it literally was horrific. And and how does that happen? How does that twist come about? And so that's really interesting to me. So back to research. I have probably 15 books on my shelf about okay. this. I can grab those and my personal lived experience there. Foreigner's Confession was super easy to, to write because of all of that. Because of that. obviously I use the internet for other little deets that needed. Right. I was just curious, you know, you lived there. How long did you live in Cambodia? I lived there about a year and a half. So, and during that year and a half, you were working at that museum. So you got a lot of, or were you working there? Isn't that Well, I was, I was, but not for the whole time. I didn't go there to do that. I went there um, and I did other things. Um, And then I, while I was there, I got that job. So. Okay. When you were there, is that when the idea of the story came to you or did that come at a later point? And then you just said, oh, wow, I've got all of this great information in my head I can use. Yes. I had written um, a different novel first. Mm -hmm. That novel was out um, querying, as we know, means basically a, it's sitting a in, a in a bottle somewhere. into the ocean, <laughs> yes, never to be seen exactly, again. Exactly. <laughs> um, and so while that was happening, I was doing all of, attending all of the craft workshops. I was trying to become a better writer and was feeling more confident in my skill set and, and realizing all the things that were wrong with the first novel that I had sent out. So I was like, okay, let's just do this. Oh, there yeah. was a seed of this book was planted by my husband years ago. My husband is from former Yugoslavia. And okay. he years ago told me a story that he remembered. I don't know. Do we have two hours? I don't we think We have so. as much time as you want. <laughs> Um, so I took, uh, when we when I was living in Singapore um, uh, with my family, this was after I lived in Cambodia, I was like, oh, let's take them on a little trip to Phnom Penh, the capital of Cambodia, and I'll show them where my former office was. And of course, my husband and, and you know, 12-year-old daughter were like, oh, what the heck is this place? You know, I mean, it's a horrible place, right? Right. It prompted him to have a memory of, a Yugoslavian socialite sort of celebrity, real person who had married a Cambodian prince and moved to Cambodia during the Civil War era with her two daughters and then disappeared. And so that was maybe the very first sort of inkling and sort of putting together with my experience and all of that, because he subsequently found out more information about her. He found her real name. He found her real aunt. We got photographs of her and the children. And so Miliana became a real person to me because she was based on a real person. Exactly. So so all of, all of that was cooking, as you know, you know, we cook on things in the, <laughs> in the stock pot, you know, in the, on the back burner for years. Until and years. all but, of a sudden it, it just bubbles um, forth and then you time, have it's time. Yeah. <laughs> The alarm bells are going. I read your bio and I do not know your nationality. I'm American. And are you American? Okay. 
Okay. You were born in Myanmar though? Is that yes, correct? Yes, I was. Okay. Yes. I, so AKA Burma, my father uh, was an academic doing research okay. there. I was in my mother's belly. They're Montana kids. And okay. She was seven months pregnant with me, so I was born there and lived there periodically throughout my life. Okay. I returned as an adult and opened a restaurant there in 1995, that, yeah. and that's going to be the foundation for next book. Ooh, and we'll get to that in just a minute. I'm excited to hear about that. All right, so why I was asking was, is you have a character, Emily's boss, who is, you know, decidedly... I mean, like he does not like Americans. He doesn't like the fact that they're coming in. He does not like anything about Americans at all. Did you find that to be true when you were in Cambodia? Was that a, a sentiment that you dealt with while there? That's a very interesting question. No one's asked me that before. So having lived throughout Southeast Asia mm -hmm. much of my life, I have always felt welcomed. Uh, you know, Americans, we really are privileged. And yes, a lot of are. people do want to, to come to America because of the privileges that we have here. There are others who don't. Looking through the lens, for example, of my husband, who's from former Yugoslavia, he's Serbian. So he's been at war with the United States while we've been married. So I do have access to a different lens of how America and Americans can appear to people outside of our own bubble. Because when I lived in Cambodia, it was in um, 92, 93, the war was actually still going on. The Khmer Rouge were still active in parts of the country then. I was there during the United Nations, arguably, occupation of Cambodia to ensure so-called free and fair elections, and that's another topic for another time. I did have people throw rocks at me. America and Southeast Asia have a very convoluted relationship. More bombs were dropped on Cambodia than all uh, bombs dropped during World War II. Wow. Cambodia is a very small place. Yes, it's it is. the size of France. And so all those bombs dropped. And mind you, most of those bombs were dropped, not for strategic military purposes, but just to offload the bombing raids that were set during Vietnam War. You know, those jets were sent off with their bombs to drop and they turn around along the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They turn around and come back to, to base and any bombs that they hadn't dropped for whatever reason, they had to offload before they could come back to base. And you know where they just, oh, let's throw them away, garbage in Cambodia. Mm -hmm. So there was no strategic purpose. Kissinger right. might argue against that, but anyway, he's gone. And <laughs> I have, don't get me started on that. I will not get you started. I was just, I was just curious because <laughs> that character, I actually, as I was thinking about, you know, he threw some pretty harsh accusations to Emily yeah. about yeah. why she was there. And yeah. that she was there to make herself feel better and not to actually do anything for the, for the people yeah. there. And, you know, that kind of hurt her because in her mind, she was not there for, for any other yeah. purpose. And it did make me think a little bit about like when we go to serve other people, when we go to help either even just locally, 
what are the intentions behind that? And, and are we doing it more for ourselves or are we doing it for the actual person or people or group or whatever that, that we say we're there to help? And if we're helping that group, are we actually doing what it is that they want us or need us to do? Or have we determined what it is that they need and we're giving them what we say they need? You know, and it, it did make me think. So it was a very good. I, I am I, so <laughs> delighted that you pulled that out uh, of, of the story because, yeah, I, I uh, don't get me started on proselytizing missionaries. I feel that how can we know what's better. Yes, we know people need to eat, people need shelter, people need, you know, access to medical, clean water, uh, you know, all of that. But at what price? Because there's all no one gets anything for free. All of the NGOs that and there are thousands of NGOs in Cambodia, NGO non-governmental organizations, right. do-gooders, you know, right. to, to right. help. There's always a catch. Nothing's free. Right. Um, so, and, so I yeah. really enjoyed that character. I mean, I didn't like him. Yeah. But I did like him because he made me think about. Well, he, he was arguably the most honest character. Quite yes. Frankly. Yeah. He was, he, and, he, he was who he was. And he explained why, why he hated the people that he hated. And he, you know, he. And I can understand where he's coming from because he lived both sides of that, where he was brought to the United States and essentially told you're now living the good life. And he didn't find and it, wasn't it to be good. that great. And it wasn't right? good. The main criticism that I've had in this book is that his character wasn't developed enough. I think in hindsight, that's correct because he was a really interesting character. He was and, very interesting. And yeah. he went from zero to 60 really Pretty quickly. Fast. So I'm going to be very careful because my villain characters, my antagonists are so important to my story, whatever story I'm writing, other than moving the plot forward. It's because they have something that might be difficult for my protagonists yeah, ex to learn and hear. Exactly. And so I'm going to be really, really, hopefully better at writing them, those characters. So I had an editor tell me to do something. And I loved what she had me do, which was in, as best as possible, take each of your characters and remove them out of the novel and just create a document that's just that character and read it. Yeah. Now you're going to miss some of the story, but read it in terms of character development. Absolutely. If, yep. If, if your character isn't doesn't have a starting place and a finishing place that's substantially different and you didn't see the ups and downs and the growth, then that character either A, needs to be removed or B, needs to be beefed up. Unless it's just a little, I mean, I don't mean the little side characters that just pop in for a moment, but those that, that have, and that has been a really eye-opening little exercise for me because I had a character in an enemy like me that my editor said, you don't need it. And it was like, because oh, in my mind, it was like key. Yes. And she had me do that. And I looked and she was right. Yeah. And but what she wasn't right about was is she wanted me to remove him. And I went through and made him a better, stronger character. She wanted me to get rid of William as the adult man looking back. Oh, that would that would make your oh my gosh! Yes, she was getting rid of my dual timeline <laughs> part, but but she was correct. I had yeah. not 
made William a strong character. He was just kind of a narrator. He wasn't really doing anything. Right. I had hints throughout the whole thing. And I took every one of those hints and created actual content. And when I did that, she said, ah, now you have a character worth keeping. So yeah, it's been, it's an interesting little exercise to learn. So. Excellent. By the way, you know, I'm with Atmosphere Press now. Oh, are you? Yeah. Fantastic. I was going to ask you about that. You were with Lure Press with the first one. Which is my own, my own. Oh, okay, so you were self-published. Completely okay. self-published. And so now with with hybrid, you know, um, right. atmosphere. So, so let's yeah. talk about that since we've brought sure. that up. How is that like the same, different, better, worse? Like what are your comparisons? Well, it's, it's early days. Um, I did. um, I thought that my book was, was shiny, polished, ready to go. And I was going with atmosphere, quite frankly, because the pricing was good. And you and Gabby were in this um, historical fiction group, you know, and recommended. Um, So I was like, okay, good enough for them. Good enough for me. You know, of course I ordered all your books and, you know, looking at them and all that. But uh, I assume they have some kind of vetting process. It seems super easy to me, but, and so that made me nervous. They've accepted me, boom, we're going to go. But then they have their development editor look at it, right? Yeah. And which was a really good thing because I got this amazing editor, um, Asata, um, and she looked at the book and she, she saw my, my what, I was not doing, which was really being completely honest. And she somehow saw that. And so she pulled it out of me. So I rewrote the whole darn thing. So that put me like, you know, almost two months behind. I am most grateful for that. And so whether that's atmosphere or not, but that, that, that was her as an editor, but now I'm like, I have to be published you know, in, in, um, in my, on my timeline. So we'll see how that goes so far. So good. There was a lot right at the beginning of like, Oh, this and this and this, but now I kind of want to be doing stuff. My team manager keeps saying, you know, no, we have to do this process. We have to do that process. Speaking frankly, that's a little frustrating to me because I want to be doing, you want to be, you're ready to move on to the next step. Yeah. 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 So, so we'll see how it goes. So ask me in three months. I will. I actually will. I'm curious to see what you think because I started with Atmosphere. Ah, uh, so you've I've never done, completely no. self-published. So I, I did with Atmosphere for Sunflowers Beneath the Snow, an enemy yeah. like me, and then I have a third one that's coming out. And so I'm at the point right now where we're done with the developmental edit. It's at the proofreader. I'm waiting to get the cover. Okay. So I'm waiting for the cover. Um, I just wrote the back of the book blurb, you know, so yeah. So we're, we're in the same general space and, and yeah, at this point it is kind of like, okay, so like I'm ready to start putting stuff out on social media, but I can't, I don't have a cover. Um, but I'm doing it anyway. So well, I'm, I'm, I'm putting the, the title out there. I mean, yeah, the title's yeah. out there. So. Yeah, me too. So, so I'm just like, and investing in a, a brand new website. Oh, so, super. Um, okay. So, and of course they're like, well, where's the cover? 
<laughs> like, I don't have a cover. <laughs> I don't have one yet. <laughs> yeah. This episode is sponsored by Visibility Podcasts. Connect with Visibility Pod about visibility strategy, coaching, podcast tours, podcast production, platform building, content creation, and distribution. Your online presence matters. Mention this author interview to receive a discount. Get the help you need today. Email visibilitypodcasts at gmail.com. That's V-I-S-I-B-I-L-I-T-Y-P-O-D-C-A-S-T-S at gmail.com. I'm curious. Let's talk about this next book of yours. What is the title? The title is The Worth of a Ruby. It is. Oh, I love the title. This is the book that I was querying when I started to write The Foreigner's Confession. Okay. And this was a book that has literally been in various forms for maybe a decade, I don't know, super long time. The book is set in Myanmar, um, though I refer to it as Burma because it's set in 1995. The 90s were big, so I write a lot in the 90s. So arguably it's not historical fiction, but I don't know. But it is. It's like on the edge of what, yeah. Yeah. We'll go with it. We'll call it historical fiction. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Don't kick me out of that group. You guys have been so nice. Absolutely not. (laughs) I did in... 1995, moved to then Burma and opened a restaurant. And by the way, that restaurant is still there, but I don't don't own it. I, and I love rubies. And that's about where the similarities stop. I was born in the country. I lived in the country. I still have family, not blood family, but family there. So I I am Burmese, arguably, according to um, the, all the astrologers, I was Burmese in my last life. So that's why oh, I can okay. say I'm Burmese. All right. because, you know, it's a Buddhist <laughs> country. Transmigration is accepted. Uh, anyway, the story is a little bit more of adventure story than Foreigner's Confession. So my character, she's offered this job opportunity. She goes to open this restaurant and she falls in with this sketchy group of um, people who are boots to steal a priceless ancient ruby. And she is carrying this baggage of, so she doesn't have an amputation like the my character in the early one, but she does have a history of extreme childhood trauma. Her transformation is related more sort of mental health. Um, right, right. Issues. Oh, I'm excited. And, and you're hoping that it will come out? When? October. October. Fantastic. Now Now that's where you and I differ. I'm not pushing it. Mine's going to come out in January. I don't have the bandwidth right now. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but my husband's ill. And so with all that going on, I don't try to push anything because it would make me crazy. And then I probably can't meet my own deadlines. So I make it nice and easy for myself. (laughs) Well, and, and I'm with you that uh, if, if atmosphere can't do it for me by late October, mm-hmm. I will delay it till January because I don't want to get lost in, in all the holiday yeah. stuff. Yeah, I put out a book February 1st and that worked out okay. I really like a fall release. I have, and you'll appreciate this, I have author events and book clubs already on the books. Is that because awesome? they're so excited, right? Oh yeah. And I don't, okay. I don't want to say no to them. I don't want oh, to no. say, oh wait. I mean there's traction, right? So we want to 
So oh, yeah, you've got to capitalize on it while it's there. While it's fingers there. crossed, fingers crossed. I'll have How a book. exciting! How exciting! So you and I are both doing a giveaway. Yes. With your Universal by Design, which is yes. so cool. I just found it so interesting. Your book came to me for this by way of Jennifer. Oh, yeah. With, okay. with Online for Authors. Okay. Not through how we were connected otherwise. And because of that, I didn't put your name together with you yes. until later when I realized, wait a minute. I have her email address already in my, how did that happen? Well, and, and we, was, we actually have had yes, a many conversations. Yes. So yeah. Yeah. So it, I didn't put the two, I don't know why I didn't put, well, cause I'm crazy and I have too many things going on, but going on. yeah, I didn't put the two together. And then it was like, wow, we are connected in like 150 different ways. We so, are. We really are. Yeah. So it's really cool that we're in that together. And, you know, so there's the, the, what is it? Eight books. Historical yeah. fiction. I mean, yeah. we'll see. I've never done such a thing before. Me neither. Um, this is my first. So it'll be really interesting. You know, for listeners, you, you know, you can sign up to this giveaway. And um, what you're what you're basically doing is signing up for newsletters from all of these authors. Um, and that enters you into the giveaway. But to receive eight books, I mean, all signed by the author. I mean, it's it's pretty it's, it's pretty, pretty cool. Awesome, yeah. So I think, and, yeah. yeah. So I think it's a cool thing. But like I said, I just found it so interesting that in a very short period of time, you and I have become connected. Then I sat and read your book. It was a dual timeline historical fiction ish, kind of like my sunflowers beneath the snow yes. is historical yep. fiction ish, you know, yep. with the dual time, you know, so it's just, yep. it's great. And I love, I love that. And I thought, yes. oh, we're going to have so much to talk about because. Well, <laughs> absolutely. So I didn't realize that you were doing this with Jennifer and the whole thing. I yes. mean, Jennifer, that connection came through Podmatch. So when you came and spoke to his, the historical fiction group, right, you know, WFWA's you had, you were so impressive and you inspired me so much of like, here's this woman who's like, she's not a media expert, but you are doing stuff. And you had actionable item suggestions that gray haired me could, could figure out, you know, and I, and so you were just such an inspiration. Oh, so well, thank, thank you, you, Terry and Brown for that. Thank you. Thank you for that. That's so sweet. I love the connections that, that I've been yeah. making. That's one of the things that when people say, what do you like about being an author? You know, I love the writing, but I love the connections that I'm making more than anything. Connections with readers and connections with other authors. I just, I don't know. It's just, it's fabulous. It's, it kind of gets me out of the little shell that you put yourself in. You know, when you're writing, you're pretty much alone. Yes. You know, you're in your own head, you got your own characters, you know, you got your own little world going on, but then you get this opportunity to go out and, you know, well, and, and, and this is for me, the big, huge silver lining of the pandemic is how Zoom is everywhere or, exactly. or different kinds of video conferencing, you know, opportunities. It's like, uh, you know, five years right. ago, this this would not have been as as seamless as it is. So. No, in fact, you know, prior to COVID and all that was going on. I don't, I think I would have been afraid to even try Zoom. Like that would have seemed like something exactly that, that young people did. Exactly. You know, yeah. not, not someone my age, like, no, we're not going to do that, you know? Yeah. And instead it was like, we had to, my husband and I went to church that way. I mean, you just, it was, it was everywhere. It, it is what we 
It's how you stayed up with your grandchildren. It, it was everything. And yeah. now it's so normal that I have trouble remembering that three years ago, I didn't know what Zoom was. I, I, I'm in agreement. You know, it's, it is crazy. It's crazy. No one ever wants something like COVID. I don't mean that, but you can look and see some of the things that have changed that actually have changed for the better. Some things have changed for the worse, but some things actually have allowed people now to, you know, you and I are communicating across the United States today. Yes, you know? we are. And, yep. and so that, that's just beautiful. Let's talk a little bit about marketing. Yes. How have you found that to be? I found it to be uh, a little bit like um, having my toenails pulled. <laughs> I was going to say teeth, but okay. <laughs> I get remember, it. remember, I was I was in yes. a you were in Cambodia. Cambodia. <laughs> to, toenails is what came to you. Okay. Oh, It it it's been very challenging. Um, it's not intuitive to me. I am mm -hmm. a boomer. Um, and proud of it. I am doing what I can, and and so I have to remind myself all the time that that that's good enough because that's all right. I can do. Right. Um, right. I do, you know, study and try and learn like from people like you, you know, today you, you made that marvelous little MP uh, for, you know, clip video, yeah, video clip. And it, I spent, I don't know, half an hour trying to download it onto my computer uh, to be able to reshare it. And then my husband comes and goes, Oh, boop, boop in one second. And there it was. So will I, I like to be efficient with my time and with social media, I'm not, but I do, you know, have an Instagram account and a Facebook account. Fantastic. I have determined Twitter is not for me thread or whatever the new thing is probably right. not for me. I'm a visual person. It seems that my audience is probably similar to your audience and they're on Facebook. Facebook um, Instagram, Instagram. seems to be. Now yeah. I have a presence everywhere. You are, you are, you, I imagine you sitting in that yellow room, throwing the <laughs> pasta against the wall and seeing what sticks. Well, and, and that's really what I'm doing right now because I don't know. And I, and I'm not doing a lot of it super well because, you know, they say, oh, well, you have to have one kind of thing for Facebook and one kind of thing for Instagram and what, and I put the same thing out everywhere, but it's what works for me. And I'm kind of seeing like what, what's working. I'm trying some of these little videos to see how that works. I put them out on TikTok. I'm not seeing any real big thing happening there. But when I put Sunflowers Beneath the Snow out, January 2022, so about the same time you're... We, well, our paths are so are parallel. so cross, right? I didn't know that I had to market. I literally sat in front of my computer and waited for the book sales and was highly disappointed that no one knew it was there. Yeah. Like, I don't know what I was thinking because I'm not an unintelligent woman, but I just, I don't know. I just thought you wrote a book and. Well, and, and mind you, you were with a publishing company, right? Yeah. And so, so no, I'm not casting shade on, on atmosphere press, but we could be with Harper Collins and still be in this, in this situation of that's the part of the game. Exactly. Yeah. In today's world as an author, you have to market your own stuff yeah. unless you happen to be so freaking famous that just your name markets itself. Yeah. And I'm not in that boat yet. So I love how you say yet. 
so first, you know, book was completely self-published and, and it was very expensive. I went with a company that created a beautiful, beautiful product. I love the cover. I love the look of it, everything, you know, the interior mm-hmm. and exterior and all of that. But it was very expensive. The reason I went with Atmosphere is because it's not as expensive. Though when you're completely self-published, all the royalties go to you. Atmosphere, we have to share a little bit, but it's a nominal amount. Right. Um, so we'll we'll see, you know, where that goes. You know, if we're published by one of, you know, a larger company, our royalties are basically nothing. 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 So so there's so much. So I I've done a lot, a lot of, of the conferences and the workshops and everything, you know, on marketing and and have come to, you know, a choice that that I can mostly not wake up at night worrying about. The issue for me is just the kind of person I am. I always feel I'm always a little uneasy. What am I forgetting to do? What should I be doing? Yeah. I make tons and tons of lists. And then I don't action on the list. So it's like some, it's, so it's almost like a soothing thing. You know, like, <laughs> I, have list. List. I, I have a list. I don't know, you know, foreigners confession, my book sales, I read most self-published authors sell between a hundred to 500 books. I mean, something yeah, like I've that. Said, I, I had heard 250 was like the, the average. Yeah. I've so, sold so, so I'm yes. happy. And I've yeah. sold more than that too. I'd like to sell a lot more. That's um, what, and I, and I tell everyone all the time, do you know, Oprah, do you know, <laughs> because you know, the truth is, is that if someone like that says, yep. Oh, I'm going to put this on my book club list, yeah, then you immediately people know who you are. And so I just need to get my book into Oprah or Jenna Bush or Reese with Reese with Reese with yeah, and and I don't care who. I've had people say, "Oh, you don't want it in the hands of," and named one of the three, and it's like, "Oh, yes, I do." I don't yeah. care who picks it up at this point because I think it would just make everything so much easier if people knew your name. It's so hard to go from I'm Terry Brown that lives in a tiny little town on the coast of North Carolina that no one has. I mean, no one here even knows who I am to trying to sell my book. And, yeah. and make it, it's, it's a, it's a little daunting. And I it try is. not to think about it for long periods of time, or then I end up feeling. You know, well, <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm so blessed to have a husband who is willing to financially support me, which yeah. is essentially a hobby at this point. He's hoping that I'll get picked up by a film studio or so that's what my husband says my husband that's where the money is yeah well he he believes firmly he said first of all you are the next great author that's what he tells me all the time and and you know he's already picked out who's playing the different characters in my books so you know and I love that your husband's doing the same I think that maybe you and I are are like similar people just living on opposite coasts (laughs) I think that's very true very true being middle-aged later middle-aged you know I'm a little women. older than that <laughs> i'm officially old last year as far as the federal government goes it is important to talk about dreams there are a lot of us old ladies out there writing books because we have the financial freedom to do it and the time to do it and the and the experience the life experience to write something hopefully interesting there's a, a river an ocean of us out there on the one hand i think that's great and so whenever i'm out in the 
about in the world, I always try to lift up other authors, lift up other other, uh, creatives of a certain age. Oh my God, there's so many of us. How do we really? And that goes back to that marketing again, right? Like, you know, how do we do do that, right? Um, But that's the one thing that I have said that I really love about the author community is everyone is so friendly. I shouldn't say everyone. I'm sure there are people that aren't. But generally, when I ask a question, people not only give me the answer, but like give me the answer and 42 resources that I could use. And, and oh, here's something free that you can go to first and you can get, you know, most of the information you need starting there. And everyone just is so free with, with what they've learned. And I find that in a, in a lot of ways shocking given how many authors there are and how few books make it big and yet everyone is just like oh here's very generous and I love it and I found that you know particularly within the the you know women's fiction writers association community even though I don't necessarily consider myself a women's fiction writer I do realize that many of of the paths that I am on started from from that place yes so I'm I'm really grateful grateful so am I So am I. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Well, it has been delightful talking with you, Leah. I am so glad that we had this. Vice versa. And and let's let's, um, stay stay in touch. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you, Visibility Pod, for all your services and management of our podcast.